Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the wonderful privilege of speaking with Stuart McGill. Stu currently serves as a professor of spine biomechanics at University of Waterloo and as chief scientific officer of BackFit Pro. As a professor for 30 years, he experienced low back or explored low back mechanics and has been the author of hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific journal papers that address the issues of lumbar function, low back injury mechanisms, tissue loading during rehabilitation, and the formulation of work-related injury avoidance strategies and high-performance training. He has been the mentor to many graduate students. The work he has done has received several international awards. As a consultant, he has provided expertise on low back injury to various agencies and corporations. He has authored several books, including Low Back Disorders, Evidence-Based Prevention and Rehabilitation, and Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. He is widely recognized by his peers as a world expert on back-related injury and rehabilitation. I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Stu. Well, good morning, Scott. It's been uh, quite a number of years since we spoke, I think. Yeah, well, we occasionally bump into each other at conferences, but uh, and you know, the, my selfish um, exploration of podcasting is because it gives me opportunity to sit down with guys like you who I have a great regard for and uh, and enjoy the opportunity to chat and actually get to cav off uh, an hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is to talk to somebody um, like yourself because we, it doesn't happen at conferences very easily and sometimes you can make time for a, a drink or a dinner or something but that's that's rare so thanks for taking the time oh it, it, it's my pleasure and when I received your email a couple of weeks ago inviting me uh, to this podcast I thought I've been so guilty. I, I owe you an apology. <laughs> and uh, you, you may or may not remember this, uh, but uh, it was quite a number of years ago. You were still with the Montreal Canadiens, and mm-hmm. I had given a, a talk, perhaps, or a speech about creating props, proximal stiffness in the core. The idea being that uh, the stiffer the core uh, as the hips develop power, more of that power is directed distally. And I remember you came up afterwards and you said, well, is there a place for for uh, mobility or stretching? And uh, in my brain, my brain heard of the core since I just talked about making it stiff. And I just gave you a one word answer. And I said, no. And I, <laughs> and, and I saw the look of your, in, in your face and in your eyes. And I, and, but you know, I, I didn't say anything else. And that's haunted me for many years. <laughs> so I, I, I wish I had that back. Scott, apologize for that at the time, but uh, no worries. that was the frame of uh, where my brain was at. <laughs> well, that's exact. That that plays back to what I exactly said. At conferences, we're so it's so frenetic, and you've got so many people asking you questions. It's an environment I struggle with at times because yeah. you you want to do justice to every person that talks to you, but it's not always possible. Anyway, I I, I thank you. Now I've got that off my chest. I can relax. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. We can we can move forward. I want to hit you with a question. What did Stu McGill, when he was a little boy, dream of doing? Uh, gosh, that's not something I really uh, think about. Um, I suppose it would have been to play in the NHL. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I loved hockey. It was my... Uh, 
passion. So I, I guess uh, that's the uh, that's the answer. Who was your favorite player? Well, yeah, uh, in those days, uh, Tim Horton, uh, Bobby Bond, if you can remember back to those days. I I can still probably name the 67 Leafs player by player. (laughs) I've got a bit of trivia for you. Sure. In 1967, which was Canada's centennial, uh, I played on a hockey team and my defense partner was Brian McFarland's son, Michael McFarland. And you remember Brian, who did the color on Hockey Night Mm -hmm. in Canada. Well, uh, Brian uh, took me and Michael uh, to that night. It was uh, the Maple Leafs playing uh, Chicago, and it was New Year's Eve 1967. So a fabulous celebration. I remember all the balloons falling out of the uh, ceiling of Maple Leaf Gardens. And I met Bobby Hull, so there was uh, another uh, favorite. Absolutely, you know, what a fabulous gentleman. I met him years later, I can tell you that story too. But uh, anyway, uh, that was one of the highlights of uh, my life, certainly my my young life, to uh, Mm -hmm. be at that game with the McFarlands, sitting in the gondola, meeting uh, Ward Cornell. Do you remember uh, Ward Cornell and... uh, Foster Hewitt, of course, doing the play-by-play. Anyway, that was uh, 1967, and uh, Stan Makita and uh, Oh, yeah. and oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, here's a question for you that was that comes right off the internet these last day and a half, which is quite fascinating. A guy asked a tweet who doesn't have a lot of followers, but apparently sort of blew up, and he asked, "What athlete would you have liked to have seen their career if they hadn't had so many injuries and they kind of had their ruin their career? Do, can you think of one that you know whose career was really destroyed by injury that you would have loved to have seen play to play a complete career? No question, Bobby Orr. Yeah, that yeah. was my response as well. I, I really think, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah, no, he is such a wonderful human being, mm-hmm. and to uh, uh, have that amount of drive and toughness and uh, uh, situational IQ. Um, and 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 yet, when I've never met him in person, but just seeing him on uh, various interviews and whatnot, you wonder where that grit uh, comes from. But mm. uh, obviously, a fabulous talent that was uh, really cut short. Yeah, I remember seeing pictures of his knees. It's interesting what his knee would have looked like if he'd been born now. Like I'm sure it wouldn't have been anything close to. Yeah. You know, I was uh, just uh, going through the grocery. I'm retired now, so I have time for this. It's fabulous. (laughs) I was in the grocery store a couple of months ago, and his new book was on the shelf in the book section. Uh And I picked it up and I looked at it. And the first picture was there. Um, He he was there. He just got drafted. And uh, he was standing on the dock here in Perry Sound with his shirt off. And I looked at that man and I thought, what a core. Man, that guy was uh, built, and and you could just see the the, the power uh, that came from uh, you know same old story, uh, a home base mm-hmm. for uh, his hips, and uh, that's where that fabulous acceleration and uh, athleticism was was formed. But uh, yeah, what a beautiful yeah. picture. The common answer actually was uh, Bo Jackson, which uh, I thought, you know, Bo is a guy I would have loved to have seen have a full career too. He was an amazing athlete. Well, that's interesting. As I became what I did become, um, because my life was about professional athletes uh, and that was my day job, at night, I was not a sports fan, so I never really watched sport and and knew Bo Jackson. Certainly, I never saw him. Mm. So, you know, that's something that I, interestingly, I, I wouldn't have related to. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I was a fan when I was a kid, but as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> well, to your pitch, your point of pictures of Bobby Orr, I will always remember as growing up uh, a picture of Bobby Hull. To your point of meeting Bobby, um, throwing a hay bale. Up yeah. onto the, you know, he was doing the hay, and he was a just a genetic freak. Like, uh, yeah, I know the picture. Yeah, yeah, I, was I know it. Yeah, incredible. So you you grew up loving hockey and um, aspiring to be an NHL player. What burst that bubble of that dream? Being a bad athlete. <laughs> 
<laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> what was what were your parents? No, no, I, I, Go ahead. You're hitting me with questions, and you know I'm a terrible guest to have because I'm such a slow thinker. And then a thought just came into my head: what what happened with hockey? And and I, I remember the seminal event. I was uh, playing. Um, now this was in Toronto. And uh, it wasn't the top league. It was it was the second level league. And uh, I'd, I'd get called up to the, the top, uh, which was uh, the, the THL, I guess they would call it in those days, uh, every now and then. But um, I played for a team on the, on the second tier and uh, I got benched one game and I was about uh, probably for, let's see now, that would have been early junior high school. I would be about 14 or 13 years of age and I got benched and it devastated me. Mm. And I just said, oh, I'm done with hockey. And I just uh, remember just saying, that's it, I'm done. And then uh, after that, I, I think I just played uh, CYO hockey mm. that, you know, you just get on the bus and you take yourself to the hockey rink and, you know, that sort of level and did that for a couple of years and never played again until uh, university just playing uh, pickup hockey. So, so were, were your parents big driving influences of, of, of sport or more academics? No, not, or? no neither. Neither. No, no, not really. I, I, I was a, not a good student. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember uh, the guidance counselor at, at, at when I was uh, in, in early high school telling my father, he's a waste of time at school. He should probably go to trade school. <laughs> And uh, Beautiful. I, I remember having a talk and, and uh, you know, getting ready to enroll at George Brown College for plumbing. So wow. it's funny how things uh, work out. Well, tell me about that. What, what worked them out? What changed things for you? Or how did you find your, your pathway? Well, that was uh, interesting, uh, you know, to this day. Uh, I, I still can't spell. I, I've never figured out the rules of grammar. I, I certainly couldn't understand mathematics. That was all gobbledygook to me in, in junior high school and, and high school. But um, I, I was never wanting to really go to university. But I, there was a high school coach, uh, and, and it was also our history teacher. But to me, it was more importantly, he was our track coach, and he was our uh, football coach. I started playing football in my last two years of high school. A guy mm -hmm. named Ralph Colucci. I still talk to him to this day. He's, wow. uh, yeah, still we get on the phone and, and talk. But uh, he said, oh, come on back to high school, you know, play football. And uh, I, I threw the discus in, in track, and he was my discus coach as well. And I had such respect for him that uh, I, I said, all right, I'll just keep hanging it in there in, in high school, mainly for those two activities. Wow. And uh, then in my last year of high school, a, a few university coaches wrote me letters and contacted me and whatnot. Would I like to go to university? And I said, well, no, not really. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I ended up going to University of Toronto. And uh, so that, that's what got me to university. It was certainly sport. It wasn't academics. I remember the football coach saying, uh, what would you like to study? And I said, well, nothing. <laughs> and he said, good, we put you guys in phys ed. So that, that's where I started, believe it or not. So you were, in, you were in phys ed at U of T. That was your bachelor's degree? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and don't think I was a great athlete on the football <laughs> team. I, I was the last string, uh, fifth string player. So, you know, all week we'd run the uh, plays of whoever the first team was playing the next weekend. So I got to learn the uh, uh, offensive uh, patterns and plays of uh, the league. Um, what did the game of football teach you, though? Did it did, did the game teach you something uh, powerful? Uh, well, gosh, you're asking such interesting questions and, and making me think. Well, that's a good I, thing. Yeah, how I would answer that, and this is paradoxical to most people, I enjoyed the training probably more than playing the game, which was probably evident on the field. <laughs> So, you know, I, I started lifting weights and, and training fairly heavy uh, in, in early high school because of Mr. Colucci. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, uh, I, I guess the expression of the strength was, was the football field. But um, I, I 
would answer that by saying I, I enjoyed the the training more than football, which I would say taught me a lot more than the game. Hmm. What did it teach you? Well, you know, my gig now it's to try and uh, much like you uh, uh, optimize athletic performance out of this human form, this linkage that's driven by a brain and and uh, has has a finite capacity and become injured and tipping points and and all the rest of it. So optimizing this this body uh, for performance. Uh, but in those days, I didn't have the education to know how to do it. So I would do it. And, you know, looking back, it was bodybuilding 101 mm-hmm. and, uh, very poor, even at that probably overtrained, not, uh, allowing enough time for the biological adaptation to take place that you stimulate with training. You know, again, you, you if I only knew then what I knew now, and, and I'm sure you'd answer that question the same way. Well, we all we all learned strength training out of muscle and fitness back in the day, and the bodybuilding journals and stuff like that. Oh, we I trained in this in this guy's basement, a good friend of mine, and we had Arnold up on the wall on a poster, and uh, Franco Colombo, and you know, similar to my background in my house. Now I had two by fours, cold rolled steel that I went and bought from a from a garage place and built my own lat pull down machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, 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 we didn't even have a, a bench for bench press. We used to bench press off a rolled up old thing to sitting on the floor. It's, 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 yeah, what we did, but, uh, I guess it kept us out of, uh, getting up to no good. So it's the good side of it. So you go to U of T for physical education and tell me about, um, that experience and what, uh, so you you go through that program where does that take where is that taking you or are you thinking i'm in and i'm going to become a phys ed teacher where are you going with that at that point in your life yeah well naturally i would have thought that in first year but in second year i started taking believe it or not math and physics courses <laughs> i took a math course at night by a professor named Clambauer, and all of a sudden he transformed mathematics into something that I could feel in my plumber's hands. In other words, calculus. I thought it was some gobbledygook the way that it was taught in high school. But he started the lecture, well, water flows through a pipe. And if you neck down the diameter, the flow rate goes up and the pressure goes up. Bingo. I, well, I, the, so what's, what's calculus? Calculus is the relative uh influence of one variable on another so the diameter of the pipe influences flow rate you're kidding me that's what calculus is yes that's all it is so all right there's an integral going one way and a differential coming back the other way slope of a line or or area under the curve all of a sudden it all was unleashed to me wow i could start to see geometry and and shapes and how these things were ellipses and and circles and you could form those in the third dimension to make volumes and all of a sudden i've got muscles and levers and lever ratios and again i knew mechanics but i never could see that somehow this cause and effect was all explained through engineering and mathematics so long story short i ended up taking more physics courses Mm. and then by the end uh, i applied for a master's uh, in uh, astrophysics, planetary motion, and that sort of thing at University of Toronto. And I got in, but I also applied for biomechanics, which I really wasn't so sure what it was, but I knew it was sort of anatomy and, and, and mechanics of the body, which appealed to me. But by this time, I was into cycling, road cycling. Mm. And uh, I applied to University of Ottawa, thinking I could ride my bike in the French uh, Gatineau on the on the other side of the Hull River, um, Ottawa River. And so it was cycling that took me to my master's degree. And uh, as luck would have it there, I, I uh, uh, ended up playing hockey for the professor's hockey team. And uh, they recruited a few graduate students. And it was a fabulous league, by the way. University of Ottawa would play, you know, the various um, uh, schools. 
And one time we played, uh, or at least there was a, maybe it wasn't the University of Waterloo team, but there were certainly a few players on it. A fellow named Bob Norman was was playing. He was a professor at Waterloo. And the host team would have the visiting team back to the dressing room for a case of beer after the game. You know, you'd beat the hell out of each other on, on the ice, and then we'd have beers together. And I sat beside Bob Norman. He said, well, why don't you come down to Waterloo and visit the lab? And uh, I, I needed uh, uh, an instrument to finish off my master's degree, which we didn't have at Ottawa. So he said, oh, I'll come and use that. Anyway, I did. Long story short, uh, by that time, I had applied for a PhD in systems engineering at Waterloo. But after meeting Bob, I switched. And he said, well, I'm just starting spine biomechanics. I really didn't know what I was getting into. Mm. And so uh, that was that. And uh, that's how I ended up uh, there. So it's, it's kind of a a theme that uh, it was more sport that took me through uh, and, and created these opportunities. And, uh, you know, <laughs> now groups will say, oh, will, will, will you come in and, and talk to our group about career development and, and how you uh, designed your career? And I said, no, I'm the worst person in the world for that. Mine has just been one great big accident. And uh, this this thing who I, that I've become, but uh, well, it's anyway. funny. It's a funny thematic actually with the, doing this podcast for the last year and all the different people that I've had the the honor and privilege to talk to. And it's it's not unusual. Like uh, the number of people who actually say, "Well, I I started here and my intention was to go there," um, are few and far between. You know? Yeah, I mean, d- d- did you know when you were twenty? who you would become now. And, you know, uh, you're, you're a very well-known person in your own right. Did you ever envision that? No. Yeah. I, I've, I've said to people, if somebody told them, <clears throat> somebody beamed me back and said, this is what your life's going to be like in the next 25 years, I would have never, never, never experienced, expected to do what I did, which is fascinating. And circuitous, yeah. like you said, it's the people you bump into in those moments that are, fantastic yeah it could have gone so horribly wrong several times <laughs> <laughs> so you you decide to get, get into spine biomechanics and tell me about what 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 lit a fire in you about that that you got really excited about that was it the well I, actual I, I, biomechanics or was it solving a problem or understanding a problem what was it yeah well that's interesting as well i've never had a problem with passion uh, my problem was always in what I was learning. So in in school, junior school and, and high school, I, I had a, an interest in learning. It was just never in the things that I was being taught. So I would uh, learn things uh, outside of school, uh, mostly in the mechanical world. I, I would, you know, I, I built a number of boats in my father's garage, uh, for mm. example, uh, still in high school. And uh, so I'd study uh, design aspects and, and construction and, and that kind of thing in, in that realm. So I don't know if I had a real passion for spine biomechanics when I started. Um, however, uh, I certainly uh, enjoyed simply trying to figure out how this machine worked, this machine of the, of the spine. And then, of course, that expands, realizing that the, that the machine is actually driven by uh, uh, a computer, which is the brain. But now the brain has emotions, and that's a whole different layer. So, <laughs> you, you know, you, you uh, develop these passions. And uh, when uh, I was a young professor, I really only had one question, and that was, how does the spine work? And then that morphed into, okay, well, how does it become injured? And then that morphed into, well, how can you rehabilitate it, knowing the mechanisms of injury? And then, uh, you know, a neurological group or an orthopedic group would ask me to come and talk. And I'd talk about some of the latest things I'd learned about how the spine works. And then they'd say, oh, would you see a patient with us? And I said, well, no, I, I'm, I'm not trained to see patients. And uh, they said, well, don't worry. What you've just said is, is uh, we think it's very relevant to this difficult case we're dealing with now. And we're with you, by the way. So don't worry about not being a clinician. And I learned very, very quickly 
I thought very differently mm. from these people. So I would do an assessment much like uh, someone uh, assessing something that wasn't working well in the mechanical world. Mm. And you do a controlled experiment. You probe it. You provoke it. You you load it. You you see what is loose. You see what is tight. You 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 see what uh, causes pain. You, you see where the performance potential lies. Mm. Um, anyway, long story short, uh, I started to see patients. Um, not that I've ever asked to see them. I've only never in my life have I said, oh, I want to see a patient or I want to give a lecture or anything like that. I simply responded to requests of people asking. And now, uh, you know, I, I have so many requests to see people for their back difficulties. I, I, I can't keep up with it. But anyway, that's sort of the development of that, I suppose. Hmm. Um, I became this clinician that uh, 30 years ago, never in a million years would I have thought I'd become what I've become now. But that's, you know, I've re I'm retired from the university and I retired primarily because I wanted to see people. Hmm. Not, I've, I've done enough experiments in the laboratory now. Every patient I see is an experiment. Uh, and, and that's what the assessment is to me. It's an experiment in progress. And you converge on what their pain mechanism is. And then you converge on a strategy to uh, stop the cause. And then you converge on a strategy to build a foundation for pain-free activity, whatever that happens to be, if it's possible. Anyway, uh, what's 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 the fire in your passion? Is it the discovery? Is it the the sort of the Sherlock Holmes side of the whole thing? Yeah, it's pulling it apart to try yeah. and figure out how it works. Yeah, I, I, I would say. And, and still, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a motor head. Uh, I'll do the same thing with an engine or a machine as I will with uh, someone's back. The only difference being the the back is driven by their own uh, psychology and and emotions, etc. Which, you know, you can imagine. You take two people, uh, both with the same mechanism of back uh, dysfunction, shall we cause it? Uh, one is a Type A person who says, oh, "I'm going to go to CrossFit and just keep on going." And you see, uh, in order to be successful, you have to hold that person back. The next person has a syndrome. They might have uh, comorbid diabetes, they're overweight, because they are movement adverse. Now, now, same mechanism, and yet now you have to encourage them. So there would be an example where one person, you have to read them and hold them back, and the next person, you have to read them, and you'll realize, no, this person needs encouragement. So... I'm I'm going to step back for one second and come back into this because I love this thread, but I'm interested in something. And that is you described yourself as not a great athlete, um, which I'm sure is you being very humble to a degree. But my question to you is coming from that sort of background, what, what, what ignited the interest in the physical, the physicality of the human body and the use of that physicality, if you weren't necessarily aligning with being an athlete? Well, I think I very much was aligned with being an athlete. I just wasn't really good myself. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, oh, geez, you know, we had a we had a, a fight ring set up downstairs at this guy's house. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was no fun getting beat up. So you, you'd figure out the mechanics of angles and, and, uh, joint torques. I mean, basically it was homegrown jujitsu. And then, you know, of course, in my later years working with some of the masters, it was absolutely fabulous. Uh, I was with a, a, a fabulous uh, jujitsu master from the UFC just uh, last January, and I had to drive back down to his gym just to get more of it because the science is just so uh, fabulous. You know, I was seeing him as a, as a back pain patient, but the deal is whenever I work with an athlete, I'll, sh I'll show them something about their back and hopefully give them some strategy to, to get back to pain-free function again. But they have to show me some of their tricks. <laughs> and uh, it, it's always been that way. So, you know, we get to roll a bit on the mat and, and uh, I learned some of their uh, uh, 
uh, expression of their athleticism and, and, and tricks. And, you know, it's just everything, um, you know, go have an arm wrestle with, uh, the Canadian arm wrestling champ. Uh, he, he doesn't live that far from you and it's just so much fun. I mean, the first thing he does is tell you a joke so that you smile and you lose your neural drive. And then he beat, or you know, he'll he'll do a thumb creep and start creeping his hand up your thumb, and then all of a sudden, all your leverage is lost. I mean, I just love all of this. It's it's just so fabulous on on how to uh, uh, potentiate your own athleticism and and take advantage of of someone else. But interesting, those who are injured often put themselves at a disadvantage to create the injury, and they don't realize it. You know, many back injuries are, are cumulative stresses. Occasionally, it's an acute insult, of course. But usually, it's uh, an accumulation of uh, bad habits, bad technique, or inappropriate technique. The stress concentrations build up, and boom, something gives way. Okay, quick break here to tell you about reconditioning. Reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises, like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications. Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatments and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminating issues that stand in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program. It becomes deeply considerate of the context of that program and the environments of the preparation. Finally, our Reconditioning Mastery Mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home. It allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice and a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances, irons out all the question marks, and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see when our next courses are being held and when our next mastery mentorship is starting. Become a reconditioning specialist and join the reconditioning revolution. Okay, we're back. If you if you got to be God for a second in here <laughs> after all of this, uh, this uh, is going to be an interesting uh, question. But uh, would you des- would you design the back differently if you if you were he or she today, or yeah, do you? Think I've, I've been asked. Mind flaw, or do you think it's a? Uh, have you been asked that question before? Maybe I have. Yeah. Okay. Um, interesting. And, and in fact, uh, Men's Health was writing an article on if you got a chance to redesign the body, mm-hmm. uh, how would you do that? And they asked several so-called experts, and I, I happen to be one of them. But you know, you go through joint by joint, and the the the, the articulated linkage that forms the body is an optimized system. So you have the core and you think of the, I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that top and bottom of the torso is a ball and socket joint. So when you consider a bench press, for example, and uh, say, all right, well, that's dominated by the pec major muscle, which is a uniarticular muscle that crosses the shoulder. Distal to the shoulder, when you contract pec major, it flexes the arm around to create a push pattern, but proximal, it attaches to your rib cage. So it bends your rib cage towards the joint as you push, which is a negative. So uh, if all you used was your bench press muscle to create a standing push, say you're on the offensive line in the CFL or something, it wouldn't work. Your body would collapse. But if you create proximal stiffness first in the core, all and you arrest the proximal side movement from the muscle, 100% of the muscle's effect is now expressed distally. So now you've created distal athleticism by the core. So do you see, I can't enter into a discussion of if I got to redesign it, um, how would I do that? Because mm-hmm. it is a linkage. One component of the linkage affects everything else in the body. I, I used to give a 
Well, when I uh, was a professor at uh, University of Waterloo, uh, I was the first professor they saw out of high school. And it was just a course, Introduction to Movement. And I was also the last professor they saw before they graduated. And that was, you know, spine mechanics and uh, uh, dealing with pain, um, enhancing performance and that kind of thing. Well, they were also learning anatomy during their first year. And uh, anatomy doesn't create an understanding of biomechanics. In fact, it probably does the opposite. Mm. So I would ask the students, here they are all in first year. I say, what does the gluteal muscles do? And they say, oh, we just took that in anatomy class. They cross the hip. They extend the hip. Okay, and what else do they do? And the clever ones would say, oh, well, okay, it, it externally rotates the hip. And I say, yes, what else does it do? Well, none of them figured out that it actually allows you to walk because of hip abduction, you know, to, to have stance on your right leg, um, you have to use the high glute or glute medius to hold the, the, the pelvis level to give a support system for the spine. So if you're carrying a heavy load, this becomes uh, very, very important. And then I said, all right, now let's do a squat. Um, I have an artificial knee. Which one is it? In my Well, I don't, but I gave this a, as a teaching example. And I showed them that if you extend the hip in the squat, that also extends the knee and it plantar flexes the foot. And then I would do different interventions and, and you know, front squat versus a back squat. And I would show them that the gluteal muscles could actually drive a perfectly pa passive prosthetic knee with no muscles at all and you would never know because the hip the knee the hip extensor pattern from the glute um would extend the knee and, the, and they couldn't tell so i said now i've just shown you that the gluteals extend the knee and they were mesmerized by this <laughs> uh and then we got into some movement patterns uh and uh showing how a muscle has an effect through the entire linkage, and that is the day they transform from being an anatomist into a biomechanist. Mm -hmm. Some people never get there. They think they've studied anatomy and they understand the body, and I would say, actually, they're, they're probably uh, uh, very, very misguided. So um, now I forgot what we were talking about. It's uh, okay. I saw your eyes light up with, with your, your bringing them that moment of discovery. What exactly, is it, what is yeah. it, uh, what is it about teaching and mentoring that drives you as well? Because obviously that's a, a piece in your puzzle. Of life. Yeah. Well, I, I guess uh, uh, that would have been uh, part of the passion when I was at the university. Uh, I enjoyed, uh, allowing those students to have those aha moment breakthroughs in, in their understanding and therefore their competency and therefore their ability to change people's lives. You know, I kept reminding them, why are you doing this? At the, why am I seeing a patient in front of me this afternoon? Really, in a nutshell, it's to change their life. Their doc has given them pain pills. The, uh, the uh, you know, someone else has told them their glutes are asleep. Someone else is, none of them have given them an assessment. My job is to give them a roadmap to follow and change their life. Uh, so that's what I really enjoyed uh, with students. But having said that, I'm, I'm retired and I, I don't mind that one little bit. <laughs> 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 that's awesome um the the whole part uh, that you talked about earlier with regard to the examination or your development of your own exploration i remember the first time that i got to uh, listen to you speak which was uh very very empowering for me because uh one you're you're brilliant you've got lots of great things that you you talked about and i enjoyed that and learned lots from you. But at the same time, there was a synergy between the two of us in, in the way that you thought and in this idea of exploring and, and really being much more inductive in your process than being um, restrained to sort of this, um, the process that I learned in school as a therapist, which was very, you know, funnel oriented, diagnose it, name that tune, you've got this, you've got that. And that's what I most liked about watching you work. Um, what, what have been the challenges to you in that process? Um, 
both from an internal perspective and an external perspective, like people's people's thought about how you explore things and vice versa. Your own, what have you questioned in your own exploration process? If that makes any sense to you? Yeah, I, I'm I'm struggling uh, with that one, but let let me start with this, and then you can guide me if I'm on the right track. I was not trained as a clinician. I was trained as a scientist. So when I assess a person my approach is a scientific one. Mm. Now, how does a scientist find the answer? They perform an experiment. So that's what I do when I probe a person. I apply different motions, postures, and loads to see what causes pain and what doesn't. I look for where the athleticism lies and where the compromises lie. I look at uh, limb lengths, uh, leverage ratios, uh, where the stress concentrations are because of their movement habits, um, etc. So there is certainly what I call the code. The code is the science. You have to know the science of how all of these things uh, work in a cause and effect sense. But then there's also the other side, which is the art. Every When you look across a group of humans, they're all different. And the art of it all is to understand and appreciate their differences. So when you look at the archetypical uh, uh uh, power player, tall, tall uh, player on the basketball court, usually long legs, short body. Now go look at some of the hockey players who, if you look at right now, the sweet spot for scoring in the NHL is what? Maybe six foot, maybe less. It wasn't 20 years ago. Hmm. 20 years ago, it was, you know, 225 pounds and six foot three. It's not anymore. It's shorter and lighter. And you'll notice a much longer body, shorter leg ratios, etc. And, uh, you know, to figure all of that out in the, the art of it and then know how to connect with a person. As I said earlier, you've, you've got the gung-ho type A personality who's an exercise addict versus the person who needs a little motivation. So th- this, this is the, the art of applying the code. Um, so I, I don't know if, if that is where you wanted to go with that question. No, it's, it's the, you know, I didn't have a a destination. I wanted to see where my journey would take me. Um, I'm also curious as to when, like you talk about the the concept of how you shifted from basically the scientific domain of practice into more of a clinical paradigm because you were being asked to see people. And when you finished your, uh, the process of of learning about what was driving this person's problem. How did you then switch into the the deliverer of solution? So you know you were looking at it from a scientific perspective. You're now going through your own diagnostic process, but not being a clinician or a performance professional by trade, so to speak, you then developed a process for how you were going to fix it. What what turned you into that or created that for you? you I I would say I had fabulous clinical mentors. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first one really was uh, a fellow named Dick Dick Earhart. Dick has passed away. Dick was Shirley Sarman's first PhD student. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was a professor at University of Pittsburgh. And he and his colleague, Tony DeLito, would ask me down to the university uh, every winter to give a lecture on what's uh, the latest and greatest in spine mechanics and function. But then I would work with Dick in the clinic for a few days afterwards and I'd stay at his house and and he was just a fabulous mentor. So I really learned uh, from Dick how to start organizing uh, clinical treatments, shall we say. Um, and then, uh, you know, I got to meet people like, uh, oh, Vladimir Yonda. How does he think and, and go about things? Uh, Robin McKenzie was another one to work with. Just fabulous. Shirley Sarman was a fabulous one. People like Clayton Skaggs, who, uh, I don't know if you know Clayton or not. He was, uh, head of, uh, performance enhancement with the, um, little baseball team out of uh, St. Louis. What are they called? The Cardinals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the year they won. The little one. <laughs> so, you know, th- these were all fabulous uh, clinical mentors. Um, but, but I will say this, and, and th- th- this 
may be of interest to uh, your listenership. I started the back clinic at the University of Waterloo. And, and it was the dean that asked me to do this. And I really didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I set up two-hour appointments with myself and a back pain person. And my co- colleagues, medical colleagues, have said, are you nuts? What, you, you're going to see someone for two hours? That's, that's not possible. And I said, well, you charge for the hour. You're paid to deliver a, uh, a, a treatment. I'm paid to make an effect. Hmm. I'm going to set aside two hours. I'm going to listen to the person and understand their story. I'm going to watch their patterns and see their habits and understand why they have cumulative stress on something that is breaking down, crossing the biological tipping point and becoming painful and dysfunctional. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to understand um, the psychological and social forces in their life. What is driving some of these things anyway? So I would work through a few with their, with their two hours. Do you know what happened, uh, Scott? I changed it to three hours. <laughs> I found that that was not adequate. And again, uh, you know, the medical community would say, three hours? Now you've even gone further away. I said, yes, but we're, we're, we're... And then here's the other curious thing. I kept score. I know exactly my clinical score because we followed up with every patient I ever saw at the university. We know who got better who didn't, how they presented, what their subclinical, subcategorization uh, in terms of their pain mechanism was. And uh, I've yet to find another clinician who's kept score and knows exactly how effective they are or not. But I'll hold my record uh, up to, to really anyone. Mm. Uh, and the whole idea of it is, you know, people will say, well, wh- what do you do for back pain? And I said, well, I haven't a clue until we do the assessment. And we understand what the mechanism is, and then we match the treatment to A, get rid of the cause, and B, build the foundation to, to, for, for pain-free function for their particular uh, situation. So if they have a, uh, a posterior disc bulge um, on the right-hand side that's got an open fissure to it, you know, that's a very different treatment program than they've got a broad-based disc bulge because of a Schmarl's node, and the thing is just flattened down because basically you've let a little air out of the tire or you've lost a little bit of nucleus. It might be in, into the Schmarl's node. So there are two disc bulges with very, very different uh, approaches hmm. um, uh, as an example. But to, to this day, I keep the three-hour... Uh, appointment time, it's the only way I can see to create the effectiveness because I'm not paid to to deliver a treatment, whether that treatment is an operation, an ultrasound session, or, you know, some corrective exercise session or a massage or whatever it is. Cool. Uh, As I said to you at the beginning, it's not really a technical podcast, but my one, um, my one question that I would have for you, and I don't even know if it's answerable, but based on what you just, the thread of what you just talked about was, can you distill down your top three, maybe things that the general clinician misses or doesn't pay enough attention to that, that you think are really the, the keys to unleashing or understanding the problem? Wow. There's no substitute for a thorough assessment. You have to perform that. And, you know, it took me a good number of years to really converge on what the essential elements of a decent thorough assessment should be. But uh, uh, you've got to be competent in understanding how this whole system works and then know how to probe each of the various aspects. But is every assessment the same? No, of course not. If we had a 70-year-old woman, or let's take a 75-year-old man who's the biggest risk that that person faces is falling. Hmm. If they fall and break a hip, that, that, that's the number one risk. Is it really back pain? Probably not. But Generally speaking, the mechanism of their back pain is going to be very different than the kid who uh, c- comes in trying to make the Olympic rowing team. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, that's a very, very different assessment. Or, or you take a power lifter or a jujitsu master, all very, very different assessments. Um, so the, I, I guess yeah, I'm not being very eloquent at, at really nailing this down for you, mm -hmm. but it's knowing what to probe, what's important in a person, and then really identify it, express it, and then use that as a roadmap to guide the intervention, stop the cause, and then build the foundation for whatever is appropriate at that person, always staying under their biological tipping point to not cause more pain, uh, etc. Beautiful. I love the answer. I'm going to take a left-hand turn on you right now. Because, <laughs> you, know, you, 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 like I, I'm a, I'm a father, and I'm wondering, you know, you, you were somebody who were impassioned. Uh, obviously, have a deep passion for what you do. Um, sometimes that's a challenge for those of us who are passionate when we start to have kids and how we manage all of that. How, how did you manage fatherhood in the beginning and being a, a dad and and um, what did you struggle with and what, what did you really enjoy about being a dad? Well, first of all, I married the right person. <laughs> so my wife, Catherine, um, you, you, people may find this awful or uh, quite interesting. I've known my wife my whole life. Our, our dads work together. I, I can remember very distinctly my wife sitting in a high chair wearing diapers. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I can. Yeah, which is uh, kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, to be frank about it, I was somewhere in the world every month for 30 years, except for three months. So obviously, she had to be the CEO of the family and of, of the house and, and that kind of thing. So she ran the show. I was glad for it. And I don't know if I was a great dad. I, I remember my daughter would quite often cry and say, oh, dad, you have to go away again. And, you know, so uh, I, I did what I did. Uh, I, there was a good side of it. And certainly there was a price to pay. Mm. Um, I have fabulous relationships with my kids now when they come home and they bring their friends. They've always we've always had a big group of their friends um, here and we just have a fabulous time. So I guess in the end it all uh, worked out okay. But um, here's another side of it that you might find interesting. Um, during the 80, in the, in the eighties, my wife was on our national uh, rowing team. So she was a, an elite uh, athlete uh, at the international level. Um, then, uh, she, you know, she retired in 88 she raised the kids primarily, I would say. And, uh, I, well, we'll just leave it at that. Um, about, uh, seven years ago, her sister said to her, why don't we go for a row in the, in the double, in the, in the rowing show? And I knew where this was going. So she got out of the boat and I said, well, how'd you like that? She said, oh, it was fabulous. And I said, good. Well, let's, uh, Let's see about getting you a rowing show. Anyway, she got back to rowing and uh, she lost her first race. I don't think she's lost one since. She became the Canadian champ, the U.S. champ. Last year, she uh, walked away from the World Masters Rowing Championship. And I can honestly say I sleep with the fastest over 50-year-old woman in the world. Wow. So, uh, and, and I will also tell you that uh, she really does it on her own in terms of organizing her training. Uh, she doesn't listen too much to me. Uh, I know I'm going to catch hell for saying that uh, if she ever hears this. But uh, yeah, she's a... Uh, and, and the other interesting thing is when you go to the Masters games in any sport, and I, I know you've had uh, some of your athletes compete at that level, you know, the former Olympians, the former pros, they're worn out by the time they're in their 50s and 60s. Those aren't the ones who are pulling the the, the big medals uh it's the ones who who came to it after so she's a bit of a rarity um but uh anyway that's uh, what she does now so uh i really enjoy paying it back uh i'm her boat boy and her water boy and uh we drive the boats around uh 
I guess uh, she'll be going down to the U.S. Nationals in um, Grand Rapids, Michigan in a, in a few weeks. So, again, I get to drive the truck and, and the boats, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, and just just try and uh, help along with that. So, it, it, it I know it was about kids, uh, but that's sort of the whole uh, family uh, situation uh, mm-hmm. now. Speaking of which, um, when you look back at um, your process of mentorship and things like that, when you see, you know, there's a common thread of, of to, to call it today's generation, that there's this, this maybe hurry up feeling that they want to get to uh, the promised land of, of their professional, um, you know, professional world and the common thread of uh guys like ourselves is always this kind of long slow and insidious pathway what's your advice to a younger professional today about you know the story that we started with which is this circuitous route to where you get to and patience and things like that what what, what's your advice well i hope this doesn't come out in left field but it's just the mood i'm in right now i would say stay off facebook It's, it's incredible to me, the patience that I get, and some of the young people, you know, when I see a patient, I say, you know, please bring your doc or your therapist or your coach, because uh, uh, we have to put this team together to organize your, your, your comeback with it to be as successful as possible. And I see these people are learned that they've learned what they know from Facebook. And then I see, well, well, who are these authorities on Facebook? Well, I don't know any masters of the craft who are really there. They're out practicing the craft and becoming better. Mm. Uh, and some of the things that I see in terms of approaches uh, and, and training methods, uh, it's the reason why I get a lot of patience, to be frank. So my advice is work to become a master of the craft it takes a long time um and and you you won't do it living on facebook Mm. that that's that's a just not the reality of it um i'll give you some uh, some interesting uh examples for example when i start an interview with a patient we start off in my living room here and the fire is always going so they sit in front of the fire. I'm not in front of them. I'm off at 45 degrees. Their chair is a custom-made chair, very dense foam designed for hips and backs. There's a lumbar support in it that they can tune. And, and I'm looking at their behavior and whether or not they know how to take advantages of these things. Um, I had a uh, patient who was uh, one of the chiefs of Homeland Security for the US. In other words, he was a master interrogator. And by the end of the uh, interview, which lasted about 45 minutes, he said, you know, you're a master at, at interviewing. He said, you used every trick in the book of interrogation to pull out of me why I have back pain. And I said, you're exactly right. That's, that's, that's what I've studied. It's part of becoming a master of the craft. So to interview a person in pain, you better know how to do it. You mm-hmm. need them to reveal things and habits and forces in their life that they've never told to anyone else because obviously they failed. That's why they're coming to you. I had a, uh, one of the winners of, from one year of uh, world poker stars at a Las Vegas. And I, I said to him, how do you know what the cards are that the person is holding? Because he does. And, uh, I don't think he'd, he'd really was even prepared for that question. <laughs> And uh, what he taught me about reading a face was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would practice with him to be passionateless uh, or passionless. And uh, uh, then I'll, I, anyway, he'd say, well, you changed the depth of your breathing. I, I, I knew you were satisfied with your hand or I mean, just those little subtle things. And right now, you know, when I touch someone's back, you can see it with just a hint of a change in how they're holding their eyes. Did that cause pain? Or the, uh, I, the, the, the light from the ceiling will be shining on their back and I just saw a twitch when I pressed on a certain spinous process. And you know, most medics are totally oblivious to all of these signs. You know, and, and then the next kid comes in wearing a baseball hat and I say, please take off your hat. And they say, why? And I said, because I have to read your face. 
And, uh, you know, th th these are all the tricks of becoming a master of the craft and understanding why and, and is the person hiding their pain? Uh, uh, do they have a motivation to do so? Are they exaggerating their pain? Do they have a motivation to do so? Um, what, what, what's really holding them back in becoming pain-free? Anyway, to become a master of the craft, uh, it does take a long time, which I think was your original question. Mm -hmm. So when I say stay off Facebook, think of what you need. I mean, if you want to be the, to build the fastest race car, there's a reason why if you go to Indianapolis, the mechanics are the same every year. There's a reason why the strength coach of the Montreal Canadiens is the strength coach of the Montreal Canadiens. They spent years developing their mastery and uh, you, you, you did it by being in the trenches and doing it and working with masters and mentors, not by listening to a marketing guru on the internet. So you know, look, I know we're on the internet t today and there's good and bad things to all of it. But uh, anyway, that would be my, uh, my answer. Think of what you need, who are the masters and go and copy them really. Beautiful. What's been um, maybe the, the most difficult side or the downside to being good at what you do or being a master of craft? Not just the demands on your time and life, I guess. Mm -hmm. There, there are, there are some, I, I've had some days and I, I, I just added it up to tell my wife kind of thing. You know, I've had 200 requests from around the world on one day to see people with really life changing life-ruining back pain. Mm. And for many of them, it's not necessary. Now, I, I don't get 200 uh, a day now, but um, th this is an incredible... And, and then, you know, they tell you their story in an email. And I'm on the verge of tears sitting mm. here. And, you know, how can you say no? Well, the reality of it is I have to say no. And I try and train master clinicians to... Uh, assist with with the sheer numbers of people who are suffering but uh that's probably the the, the hardest part mm. and uh, obviously i don't have a hundred percent success rate and uh in internally i cry as well when some people can't be helped mm. and uh that's uh one of the things that I, I admired in you the first time I met you and, and still today I see in you is that somehow through all of this responsibility, um, you've seen, you've, you've found a way to take care of yourself physically. Um, you know, you're, you're in, you're in great shape. Um, how, how do you find that balance or how do you craft that balance for yourself? Wow. What an interesting question. I was thinking the other day, because I get asked this a lot, what do you do for your training? Because, you know, I'm in my mid sixties now. Scott, I have no pain. I had pain when in my banging in the hockey rink at thirties and forties and, and doing too much strength training, probably, but I have zero pain now. And I thought what I should probably do one day is videotape one of my own training sessions. Not, mm. not that, you know, just people are interested. What does the spine guy do for his own back and whatnot, but to, to reveal a few things. I mean, I've had hip replacement, so that's, that's obviously helped, but you know, I've broken my neck my ribs, my clavicle, uh, my, my, my hip. Um, uh, anyway, my hand. Uh, but, but the point is now, um, r remember how we opened this with my apology about uh, <laughs> uh, you asking about stretching and mobility. I do more stretching and mobility now. Um, so all the collagen has stiffened in the discs of my back and the ground substance that holds them together. I have no risk of disc bulges or anything like that, no associated <laughs> load. However, I'm becoming a little old man and I'm starting to slouch a little bit with my neck and my thoracic spine. So I do a little bit of strategic mobility. So here's the formula to put it in a nutshell. There's seven days in a week. Two days in a week, I'll strength train, and I'll put in the word power there. So a little bit of speed and strength at the same time, absolutely, for my hips, uh, the ability to arrest a fall, for example, get your foot out in front of you. These are all, you know, you're stumbling and, and that sort of thing. These are all uh, things I don't want to lose. 
So two days a week, my brain focuses on a little bit of strength and power. Two days a week, I do a survey and say, what's a little bit stuck? Well, my neck, possibly my thoracic spine, a little bit of hip mobility, a little bit of hand mobility. Because I, I still work a lot with tools and, and uh, that kind of thing. And then two days a week, I'm going to do something else. So yesterday I had a good long bike ride. I'm not going to ride a bike today. I'm, I'm just a little okay. That was enough. I'm going to let my body adapt to the stimulation I created yesterday. So, you know, in the summer, it might be a swim or a bike. In the winter, it might, might be a cross-country ski. You're just simply splitting firewood and going out and w- making it a workout. Mm. Uh, one day a week, rest. Let biology work its magic you know i hear all this stuff about degenerative disc disease and degenerative this and that i i believe the opposite your body's in this continual state of regeneration which i know is a topic close to you allow in other words stimulate the regeneration adaptation six days a week there's my formula and uh, on the seventh day, now, for gosh sake, allow that regeneration, adaptation to occur on the positive uh, side of the uh, tipping point. And I have zero pain. I feel fabulous. Uh, how's that? <laughs> I think it's a beautiful way to bring this puppy to, uh, to almost a close. I have one formal question I ask everybody at the end, and I say... Uh, you will unfortunately perish from this earth one day, hopefully not for a long time, but how would you like to be remembered? I don't want to be. Cool. I, I don't want to be. I just, uh, you know, uh, people have asked me that over the years, and I say, well, look, I, I contributed a little bit to the science, perhaps. Well, go to the library. It, it, it's there. But me, me as a person, I... I have zero response to that couldn't care less cool beautiful response sir it's been an absolute pleasure spending an hour with you thanks for taking the time today and uh it's been a great conversation so yeah thanks scott you had some uh, fabulous questions and you made me think and you know what's going to happen tonight i'm going to go to bed and i'm going to think about this and i'm going to think oh you dummy what was it that was a terrible response and uh now we're going to get together in another 10 years and i'm going to say scott i owe you an apology that question i gave has been haunting me ever since i had that back but well uh, hopefully hopefully the next one we have a beer together or something and we don't have to be recording so that's beautiful thank you sir yeah all right good luck to you thanks for all 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 the good things that you do as well thank you have a good day Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.